Let me welcome you one more time in North Suburban Church. Shana Tava, Happy New Year to our Jewish sisters and brothers. It's been a great privilege to worship with you all so far today, and it'll be a great privilege here to open the Word together. So let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now, let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. As much as we modern people try our best to deny the involvement of God in our everyday affairs, we're kind of haunted by him. We feel this pull toward the transcendent. We can can see it in the draw to superhero movies today. We can see it in the popularity of a show like Stranger Things. When a piece of art of some form comes out that indicates or suggests that there might be more than just what our eyes can see, we want to eat it up. Why is that in our day and age? I think there might be a couple reasons. One, as good as we've become at explaining things away by natural causes, there are things in each of our lives that just are unexplainable and they eat at us, they haunt us. But also, I think, um, there's something about living in a day and age where we can, on YouTube or on TV, see some of the most amazing achievements of humankind taking place. The kinds of things that move us to tears, only to be immediately followed by a soda advertisement. When we see that, the ultra-commercialization of our world, of our society, I think there's something that rises up within us, consciously or unconsciously, that says, there must be more than this. There must be something out there that like really, really matters. What if I told you that that desire for the transcendent that exists inside of each of us was placed there actively and intentionally by the God of the universe so that we would be drawn to him? And what if I told you that there's a community of people who, though very far from perfect, has found the transcendent that we are all looking for? I think that's what our scripture text suggests today. Would you turn with me? 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start with verse 22 today. Just a little review. We're working through this letter. It's called 1 Peter because it's written by one of Jesus' disciples named Peter. It was written about 30 years after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And Peter wrote this letter to believers in what is today Turkey during a time in which they were just starting to be mocked, ostracized, excluded for their Christian faith. We've been walking our way through this first chapter. We saw at the beginning of the chapter the good news of what God has done for us in Christ, this good news that gives us a living hope. And then last week what we saw in verses 13 to 21 is that Peter goes before his readers and says, if this living hope is true, then here's how we ought to live. And in today's text, Peter continues that discussion of how we ought to live in light of our living hope, Uh, except now he extends it to the horizontal dimension, meaning how we're to interact with each other, with other human beings. That's where we're going to be today. In other words, it's a community-based passage. We're going to see a lot of community language in here. It's going to talk about our life together 
as a people who have found the transcendent that the rest of the world is looking for. So we're going to walk through this text, framed it around three questions, all dealing with community and related to our lives today, because this passage is one that is very directly applicable to some of the questions that we are asking, some of the longings of our hearts in a day in which we are starved for a community that's found the transcendent. So let's jump right in. We'll read the text as we go. We'll start with this first question and this first section, verses 22 through 25 of chapter 1. Are we looking for a community in which love is permanent? Are we looking for a community in which love is permanent? As I read verses 22 through 25, look for community language there and look for that permanence language as well. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. UCLA has a loneliness scale that is kind of the industry standard, I suppose, in measuring loneliness. And now, for the first time, over half of Americans are considered lonely. Uh, It's especially an acute problem for men. Um, It's rare that a man has someone to cry with, to share fears with, to go below the surface with. It's rare, maybe you could even think, men who are here today, do you have a friend, a male friend in your life with whom you could look in the eyes and sincerely say, I love you, and it wouldn't be weird. Our text today, though, encourages us to consider or imagine a different sort of reality. It does so starting with a command and then a basis for that command. If we look at the text here, it's going to be hard to see, but here's the command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. If you're looking in your Bible and you see that in verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. If you have a different translation, you might see love one another constantly from a pure heart or something like that. That, that may actually be a little bit closer to what's going on in the original here. It's, it's the idea in that word earnestly of something like perseveringly or enduringly, it goes on, it, it continues, it doesn't perish. But if we're called to the sort of love that doesn't perish, it better be based in something that doesn't perish, and sure enough, it is. That's what we see in the basis for this command, which starts with verse 23 and works its way down. The basis for the call to love enduringly is that we've been born again. We've been born again. But what's what's persevering or enduring or lasting about being born again. If you think back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago about the second birth, what's enduring about it is this. We might think about it this way. With our first birth, we were conceived by mortal fathers, and therefore we were born to die eventually. With the second birth, we were conceived by an eternal father, and so we were born to live and live forever. That's what makes the new birth enduring, lasting. That's the reasoning that only something lasting, the new birth, can produce something lasting, which is an enduring love. But there's another layer of it here. In verse 23, we see that the new birth itself is only lasting because the word of God is lasting. Do you see that in the quote in verse 24 as well? 
Flesh, that's human beings, they die. Grass, that dies. Flowers die, according to verse 24. What doesn't die? Verse 25, the word of the Lord remains forever. And in case we are confused about what the word of the Lord is, he says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Have you heard that good news? That good news is that even though you and I were God's enemies and acting like it, rebelling against him, staging private revolutions in our hearts, we've said, against the God of the universe, still he chose to come as a human being in the person of Jesus Christ and die on a cross in our place, taking the punishment that we deserved so that we could be forgiven of our sin and have eternity in perfect relationship with him, be included in his forever family. That's the good news. And that's the news, according to Peter, that produces the second birth. In other words, you can't get a second birth just by hearing someone's story about how they were a bad person and then became a good person. That doesn't produce a second birth. That doesn't birth you a second time. You can't even achieve a second birth by yourself going from being bad to good. That doesn't cause you to be birthed a second time. The only thing that can cause you to be birthed a second time is this internal, eternal, enduring Word of God, the message, the news about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's a supernatural message in such a way that it can produce a new life within us when we hear it and when it sinks its way into our hearts. So, just to trace the argument again in these, this series of verses, the good news lasts forever. And it's because of that that our new birth lasts forever. And it's because of that that we're called to a sincere, pure-hearted love for one another that will last forever. This can only be possible because the new birth lasts forever and because the good news lasts forever. That's the argument here in verses 22 and 25. Problem. We, the church, and I'm not just talking about North Suburban Church, but the, the universal church, the followers of Jesus Christ, haven't always been known, have we, for this forever sort of love. In fact, somebody uh, came up with this number. I don't know how they figured this out, but 33,000 Christian denominations exist. Have you heard that number before? And presumably each one coming from a split between Christians who couldn't agree on something, right? We've all heard the horror stories of churches that split into two churches because of something as silly as the color of the carpet. We actually are known and even mocked in some circles for our inability to love each other, not just not through hard things, but even through the most inconsequential little differences. And when election time comes, whew, it becomes really difficult. So maybe the takeaway here in verses 22 through 25, maybe just first a takeaway for us who would profess to be believers in Jesus. Friends, may we here at North Suburban Church be a church that breaks those trends. May we be a church that joins the many communities of Christians around the world who do extend that permanent sort of love to one another, even to those who look different from us, even to those who act different from us culturally, even those of us who vote different from us, even, for those, even, even toward those who offend us. May we be that sort of church who extends that enduring, that permanent sort of love because of the good news that is saturated in our hearts, that eternal word of what God has done for us in Christ that moves us to show that kind of love. And maybe just a word here as well as we end this first section to those who haven't yet placed their faith in Christ. We might just see from this section, this section maybe asks, calls us to ask ourselves, are we satisfied with the friendships in our lives? 
Maybe it's a time to take stock. Are, are the friendships in your life based on this sort of enduring love or just based on convenience? Do so the friendships in your life cross barriers of ethnicity, socioeconomic class, political leanings? Or are they homogenous? Uh, when things get hard in your life, do your friends step up for you? Or are they there for you in those moments? Or do they go MIA? If you're frustrated with your friendships, we want you to know that this is a place here at North Sub in which we are far from perfect. However, we are a community of people who believes that we have an opportunity because of the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ, to have those sort of deep relationships of enduring love. And we want to work at that together. And we want to welcome you to be part of it and join in with us. So we ask this question here at the outset of the first point. Are we looking for a community in which love is permanent? And maybe we've seen now after the first few verses that only the eternal message about Jesus can, communi- can create a community in which love is permanent. Until the eternal message about Jesus sinks in, then our attempts to create this sort of community, a permanent love, is something like a patch of dirt trying to work really hard to spring up a tree. Right? It can't happen no matter how hard it tries unless a seed falls in that dirt. Right? Once there's a seed, now we've got a chance for a tree to grow. It's the same thing with the seed that is the eternal message about Jesus. Once that's there, that's the only way that we can create a community that has this sort of enduring love. Second section, we might ask this question. Are we looking for a community that is always growing? Are we looking for a community that is always growing? I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of chapter 2. And if you'd follow along and look for language dealing with growth. Peter says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Have you ever been part of a community that's still the same two years later? Or a community that's even still the same 20 years later? Sometimes we see it at reunions, class reunions, right? And at first it's a little bit funny for a few minutes. Um, Like old Ralph, he's still the same way he was in high school. But then after a few hours together, you're like, Ralph's still the same as he was in high school. I think those moments maybe push us to realize that we are longing to be part of communities that aren't stagnant, that don't stay the same, that are actually growing. And it's that growing sort of community that's laid out here in verses 1 through 6. Did you see the two analogies and how they both dealt with growth? In verse 2, it was the analogy of newborn infants growing up into salvation. In verse 5, it was the analogy of a building, living stones being built up into a spiritual house. In other words, the pictures in Scripture of a community of faith don't have any room for stagnancy. Instead, there's an expectation that we'll be growing. Now, how do we grow? I think these six verses lay out some ways. Verse 1 
tells us that part of how we grow is to put away the things that hinder growth. So we see them there in verse 1. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Why do those get mentioned as things that hinder growth? I think that when we remember who Peter's writing to here, to exiles, to people who are being pushed to the margins in society, aren't these exactly the sort of behaviors that we in exile, when we are pushed to, when we get pushed to the margins that we're tempted toward? It's the, it's the, it's the mindset of, okay, you hit me, I'm going to hit you back harder, right? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Peter says there's actually no room for that if you want to be a community that's growing. But Peter doesn't just tell us what to avoid. He actually tells us also what to yearn for. Do you see that in verse 2? You're supposed to yearn for what will make us grow. He calls it pure spiritual milk in that verse. Uh, Now, if he wrote that in 2019, he might have to put some sort of trigger warning on that for parents of two-week-old babies who are waking up throughout the night um, who might be traumatized by a reminder of this But we understand what he's talking about, right? With newborn infants, we see the picture that longing for pure spiritual milk. A newborn infant is not only willing to wake up to get the milk that they want, but they're willing to wake up their parents to get the milk that they want, right? Um, They are eager for that milk. They want that milk frequently. And their growth is directly proportional, proportionate to the amount of milk that they take in, right? It's the same with us. Peter's showing us what the word of God, this scripture, the Bible, ought to be for us. Uh, We ought to be ravenous toward it. We ought to be doing whatever it takes to get it. And we should be desiring it frequently because our taking in this word as spiritual milk is what will cause us to grow. Then he shifts metaphors, though, doesn't he? Verse 4. From nursing infants to... A building. Uh, He quotes here in the following verses three passages from the Old Testament, all that deal with uh, the idea of a stone. And he kind of paints this picture using these passages that there's this building. We are living stones in that building, according to verse 5. Jesus himself is the living stone, the ultimate living stone, according to verse 4. And he's also called the cornerstone of the building in verse 6. You know what a cornerstone is? Cornerstone is the first stone that gets laid down in a building, right at the uh, right at the corner, obviously there. And all the other stones in the building get plumbed off of it. Plumbing, you, you picture like a string being laid in this direction. All these stones need to align with that. A string gets laid in this direction. All these stones need to align with that cornerstone. It's upward. They all need to align with the flatness of this cornerstone. They are only said to be straight and in the place where they're supposed to be if they are straight with respect to that cornerstone. That's what Jesus is for us. And that's why verse 4 tells us that as we come to him, that's how we're being built up. Do you follow the argument there? There's some words in between, but verse 5 says we're being built up, and we're being built up if we retrace back to verse 4, as we come to him. In other words, the way we grow is by coming to Jesus, the cornerstone, over and over and over again to square ourselves back up uh, to make sure that we're in line. Now, we've got a problem with that again, though, just like we did in the first section of the text. It would be nice if the church of Jesus Christ always acted that way, if we were always that eager for growth, if we were always returning to our source, to Jesus, our cornerstone, time and time again like we ought. But it's so easy to become complacent, isn't it? 
it's so easy to lose that growth mindset and become happy with where we are in our faith. It becomes so easy to compare ourselves to other Christians, other churches, and say, well, we're doing better than them, so we're good. So maybe a takeaway for us from the second section as Christians is let's be a community that's always dedicated to growth. Let's be the sort of community that if a year goes by, even if a month goes by, and we take stock and we see that we don't look more like Jesus than we did a month ago or a year ago, that that deeply, deeply bothers us. That uh, when we find ourselves becoming stale, and we will find ourselves becoming stale, when, when we find ourselves going through a season in which stones aren't being added to the building, that we look within ourselves, we look to each other, and we ask ourselves the hard questions that need to be asked about why we're not growing so that we can get back on track with growth. Now, if you're here this morning and you're thinking about this idea of growth and you're realizing that, man, maybe it's been a long time since I've noticed any growth in my life uh, spiritually or personally. Uh, I actually can't think of the last time I noticed growth going on. Whether you are a church person or not, the encouragement I want to give you is to consider verse 3 here. A little phrase there that we kind of skipped over. But take a look at that. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Like verse 3 says. I say that because you see how that argument works going from verse 2 into verse 3? It says you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And it's significant that Peter doesn't say if you've known that the Lord is good. He says if you've tasted that the Lord is good. Why does he say it that way? Why does he talk about tasting that the Lord is good as opposed to just knowing that the Lord is good? There's a difference, right? I know George Washington was a good leader. I didn't taste of George Washington's leadership skills, right? But not only do I know that a Cubs game is fun to attend, I've tasted of the fun that comes from attending a Cubs game, right? There's a difference between just knowing something intellectually and tasting of it. And so the question for us as we read verse 3 is, have I actually tasted that the Lord is good. If I'm not growing, it could be that I've never actually tasted in the first place that the Lord is good. I might be somebody who's been in church for 30 years and known it in my head, believed it even in my head, that God is good, but I've never tasted that. It's never been a personal experience for me. If that's you this morning, today could be that day. If you ask the Lord, Lord, as as I look at your word this morning, as I hear the good news being preached, Lord, Help me to experience a taste of your goodness, not just an intellectual knowledge of your goodness. That's a prayer that our God wants to answer, and it could be today that you experience that tasting of the Lord's goodness for the first time that leads to and unlocks growth in your life spiritually. So we asked, are we looking for a community that's always growing? Now we can say, well, based on this text, we only truly grow by coming to Jesus. We only truly grow by coming to Jesus. That was how verse 4 started, as you come to him. In other words, I could set all the spiritual growth goals I want. I could do all the random acts of kindness for people uh, week after week. But if I'm not coming to Jesus in his word, regularly, frequently, eagerly, like a nursing infant comes to a mother for milk, I'm going to be the same person tomorrow that I was today and the same person next year that I was This year, at best. Final question. Are we looking for a community that knows who they are? 
Are we looking for a community that knows who they are? That's identity language that I'm getting at there, knowing who we are. I want you to look for that identity language as we read the final section of the text, verses 7 through 10. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I heard a pastor say once, if we could convince people, if we could just convince people of who they are, we wouldn't have to tell them so often what to do. If we could just convince people of who they are, we wouldn't have to tell them, at least not so often, how to act. There's some real truth in that, the way Scripture words its commands to us based in our identity. I think about it kind of like this. Um, You think about the superhero movies or the wizard movies or the teen dystopian movies, right? There's often a scene at some point in which some older, caring individual uh, comes alongside this young person with special powers that they can't understand, and they say, there's something you need to know about yourself, right? You were born on Krypton, or uh, your parents were actually had magical powers, right? Or... Um, you were part of an experimental group as a baby that were genetically modified. And it's like, whoa, now I know who I am. There's something like that in this passage. I think this passage is actually intended to be something like that for us as Christians. It's supposed to give us an idea of who we really are that we never realized before. So let's run through some of the descriptors here. Just We only have time to do it briefly in verses 7 through 10. What does it say about who we are in Christ? It says that we are a people... Uh, who have honor coming for us, not shame. Do you see that in verse 7? The world tries to shame us during exile, push us to the margins. Peter says, not so. You won't be put to shame. End of verse 6. There's honor coming for you. Verse 7. What else does it say? Verse 9. It says that we are a chosen race. Not a choosing race who pats ourselves on the back for making a good choice, but a chosen race made up of Races, all different sorts of races, made into one new race of people who are marked by our gratitude for being chosen despite not having earned that choosing ourselves. What else does it say about us? It says in verse 9 that we're a royal priesthood. Combines two ideas of king and priest, right? Jesus was a priest and a king, and he invites us to follow in his footsteps as members of his royal family, but also who are priests, people who mediate between God and human beings who serve uh, to communicate who God is to a watching world. What else? It says that we're a people for his own possession in verse 9. Uh, there's 7 billion people on earth. One group out of those 7 billion people, God has said, I'm putting my name on that group. Uh, those ones are mine. That's what it means to be a people for his own possession. How do we get included in that people of his own possession? Verse 10 gives a summary of it. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. In other words, we were orphans, you and I. Not only orphans, though, we were facing a death sentence. 
But then God, in his mercy, forgave us from our sin and welcomed us into his forever family. That's how we got included into this people for his own possession, this holy nation. Under pressure, it's easy to forget that during a time when we're under cultural pressure. It's easy for our minds just to get focused on, well, what if I get mocked for this faith? What if I get treated like I'm trash because of this faith? What if, uh, what if I end up on the wrong side of history? But these verses are a reminder that we won't be on the wrong side of history. We won't be on the wrong side of these honor-shame conversations. In the end, there's honor coming for us. In the end, we will be seen to be a holy nation, chosen race, a royal priesthood, because we are the people for God's own possession. So, take away from this third section of the text. Maybe for those of us who are Christians, the takeaway is pretty straightforward in verse 9. Why did God do all these things? So that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's an important clarification because based on all we've talked about so far, we might fall into the trap of thinking that God did all these wonderful things for us in Christ to meet our felt needs, right? We wanted permanent love, and so he said, I can give that. We wanted community that's always growing. He said, I can give that. We wanted identity, and he said, I can give that. And that's all true, but that's not first and foremost why he did it for us. According to verse 9, first and foremost, why he did it for us was not for our felt needs, but for himself. He did it so that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What does that look like in practice? It looks like two things. First, meditate on this good news until we become glad about it, until our hearts are filled with gladness about it. And then second, just be honest with people about your gladness. And that starts in our conversations with other Christians, in which we're often all too slow to share about the gladness in our hearts because of what God has done for us in Christ, but then it spills out also into our conversations with people who don't know Christ. If we found the cure to the disease that all 7 billion people on the planet are suffering from, how selfish would it be of us to withhold it and keep it for ourselves? Let's proclaim the excellencies of our God. Let me take a moment and just do that if I may. Myself, I'd like to proclaim his excellencies in his own life. The one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I was walking in darkness. That was true about me. What that looked like for me is that I was living in constant shame. It looked like that I was constantly petrified that someone would see through me, see through my eyes to see the darkness that lived inside of me that I would be exposed as an imposter. And so I was walking around with a constant fear that someone would find out how I was living behind closed doors until, it was the age of 13, God called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you know how freeing that was for me? When I got to experience life in the light for the first time? When I got to experience that no, I haven't been made perfect by any means, but I have nothing to be ashamed of because God has looked at the deepest, darkest parts of my heart and chosen to love me and save me anyway. You know how freeing it is to wake up day after day after day with that same knowledge, despite the fact that I continue to fail? That I can be in the light today. That it can all be exposed, it can all be shown, and I can throw myself on his mercy and have no shame. I will forever proclaim the excellencies of the one who called me personally, Tim Higgins, out of, his, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
If you're here this morning and you haven't yet experienced that, this passage presents you with a crossroads, doesn't it? There's really only two ways to go. Either Jesus is going to be the cornerstone on which you set your life, or Jesus is going to be a stumbling block that you trip over. Do you see that in verses 7 and 8? Those are the only two options for who he will be for us. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they stumbled over him. They looked at that stone and they said, that stone can't be the cornerstone, it's crooked. And so they stumbled over him, they missed who he was. But the reason they did, it says, because of their disobedience. In other words, their sin blinded their eyes, it distorted their vision so that they looked at the cornerstone and said, that's off. May that not be true of anyone here this morning. Would we turn to Jesus as our cornerstone, the one that we build our lives on? So we ask this question, are we looking for a community that knows who they are? And now we can maybe say from this text that who we are depends on what we've done with Jesus. If you're here this morning and hearing this, you have a chance to call on Jesus, to turn from your sin, the sin that we all once lived in, and to put your trust in him to save you. If you do that, then these descriptors, these beautiful descriptors in verses 9 and 10 can be true of you. You could be included in his, holy, his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. You could be among the people for his own possession, even this morning before you leave here. So our big idea today is this. Come to Jesus in his word to be included in this distinct community we've been talking about. Come to Jesus in his word to be included in a distinct community, a community that's found the transcendent. If you're looking for more, there is more out there. But the transcendent isn't going to be found by taking a trip to Burning Man or to Lollapalooza. The transcendent that you're looking for isn't going to be found through emptying your mind in meditation or through a mindfulness app on your phone. The transcendent isn't going to be found through the greatest high that you've ever achieved. It isn't going to be found through career success or even through a great marriage. You won't find the transcendent in any of those places. You'll only find it in Jesus Christ. And you'll find it in the context of the community of people who have found it already in him. We are a people, though far from perfect, here at North Suburban Church. We are a people whose hearts were restless until they found their rest in him. To say it differently, we are a people who had a hole in our hearts that we kept trying to fill with all sorts of different things, and nothing worked until we put him in that spot where he was meant to be. We are a people who, when he grabbed hold of our lives, it felt to us like we had been fish living on dry land for our whole lives, and we finally got thrown into water, and we were finally in the place we were meant to be. Have you had that experience of your heart connecting with the transcendent reason for which your heart was made? If not, I just want to ask, why not today? Why not today? The angst that is in your heart so frequently has been placed there for a purpose, to draw you to the God who made you for his own purposes. That same God has been pursuing you to this day, to the point where he brought you here this morning to hear this message in his word. He loves you and wants a relationship with you. Now the question is, what are you going to do with him? Will he be, will this Jesus be the stumbling block that you trip over? Or will he be the cornerstone that you set your life on? Let's pray.
Oh God, we thank you first and foremost for your son, Jesus Christ, who came and lived a perfect life and died in our place so that we could be with you forever, so that we could experience the transcendent here on this earth, we could experience tastes of it, and then for all of eternity that we could experience it in its fullness, that life that we were meant to live, that life that we were created for before it all went wrong due to our sin. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you show us in extending this offer of salvation to us, that you give us the opportunity to set our lives on Christ, our cornerstone, that you've given us a chance even this morning to hear that call in your word. And Lord, I pray for the person who might be here this morning who hasn't yet placed their life on Jesus as the cornerstone. And I pray that you'd move in their hearts and as they reflect on this word that they've seen in Scripture, that they'd be gripped by the good news of what you've done for us in Jesus, what you've done for them in Jesus, in such a way that it moves them in such a way that they taste of your goodness for the first time instead of just knowing it intellectually and in such a way that they come to you and they desire to be yours, to be part of your holy nation, your people for your own possession, to, to place their life on you as cornerstone. Lord, as we finish this service by singing to you, please do a work in each and every heart that's here. Cause us to be a people who come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we're going to finish by singing two more songs. But while we...